Well, our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. If you've got your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to be opening up there. Again, we always encourage you to bring your Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible, there's one there in the pew for you. And if you don't own, if you don't physically own a Bible, take that copy home. Just promise us that you'll use it, that you'll read it, that you'll put it to work. We always want to be doing that. We want to be putting God's Word to work in our lives. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. Paul opened chapter 4. It's been some weeks now, but if you can kind of let your mind sift back there a little bit. Paul opened chapter 4, encouraging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Verse 1, chapter 4. And as we studied those first few verses in chapter 4, I noted that the sentinels who stand guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier walk markedly different. They don't carry out their duty with a crooked step. Likewise, we, Christians who carry the guard for the name of Christ, the name above all names, should walk in a manner worthy of our infinitely higher calling. Paul picks back up on the motif of the believer's walk here in verse 17. There was a little bit of a pause, a little bit of a break, a little bit of a parenthesis there from uh, verse 3 till verse 17 here. Paul talked about unity in the body of Christ. We dealt with that. Here in verse 17, Paul picks back up uh, on that motif of the Christian's new walk. And he carries that theme, as a matter of fact, from verse 17, chapter 4, verse 17, on through the remainder of his letter, as a matter of fact. The final three chapters in our study, we'll find specific practical instructions for how local congregations, Christian individuals, and Christian households are to live out the exhortation in chapter 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to which we've been called. Instructions for practical growth and holiness cover the map for the remainder of our study. You can, if you think about a map, a road map here in the letter of Ephesians, practical instructions for holiness and practical growth cover the map for the remainder of our study. Paul begins these instructions here in verses 17 through 19. That's our text for this morning. And here he encourages us that though we live in the world as Christians, we've been redeemed, our citizenship is in heaven, but though we live presently here in the world, we are not to look like and we are not to live like the world in which we live. We've been given a new nature, a new heart. We've been given the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul's Paul's already taught those things in his letter. We're altogether different. We're new creatures in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Thus, we are to be different from the world around us. In the world, but not of the world. That's the title for this morning's message. In the world, but not of the world. With that being said, let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. I want to encourage you to stand if you have the ability to do so. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, pens the following words. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You may be seated. Five points on your outline this morning. We're simply going to walk through the text. What Paul does here for us is he paints a picture, and it is a bleak picture. It is a dark picture. 
of what the life of an unbeliever looks like. And Paul paints that bleak, he paints that dark picture of the life of an unbeliever to set up contrast. Now, Paul oftentimes writes with contrast. It's one of his teaching tools. Paul is a great teacher. And he knows that we learn oftentimes by way of contrast. Show me this so that I know what this is. Help me look at this so that I have a better understanding of this. That's what Paul's doing simply in our text for this morning. He is bleakly, very darkly, illuminating, shining light on the life of an unbeliever, what it looks like, so that we would know, that we believers would know, how we ought to walk. What Paul does is he says, do not walk, do not live. Anytime you see walk in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, it oftentimes characterizes a lifestyle. In other words, our lifestyle is to be completely different than the lifestyle that we see being lived out in the world around us. Point number one in your outline, if you're taking notes this morning, is this. We are not to live like unbelievers who walk in the futility of their minds. It's pretty simple from the text. We just grab that right from the text. We're not to live like unbelievers who walk in the futility of their minds. Paul says, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Uh, Look at that first word there. Uh, Your Bible, if you have the English Standard Version, probably starts with the word now. If you're using the New American Standard, you see the word so there. Uh, Those words refer back to what Paul has been saying about our high calling in Jesus Christ. They're result words. Paul is saying, as a result of what I've already said, now do this. That's what he's saying here. Because we've been called to such a great salvation, because we are unified in the body of Christ, because we've been given uh, gifts by the Holy Spirit, because we are being built up by gifted men, we should now, or as a result, no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. In other words, we can't accomplish the, the glorious work of Jesus Christ by continuing to live indistinguishable lives from the very world that we've been saved out of. Paul's really saying two things here in the beginning of verse 17. This doesn't fall on your notes, but if you want to jot these down, I think this will be helpful for you. Two things I think Paul is saying here in the beginning of verse 17. First, as believers, we must lay aside our former way of life. We as believers must lay aside our former way of life. The way that we lived pre-conversion is not to characterize our post-conversion life. I think that's the first thing that Paul's mentioning here. Secondly, as believers... We are not to seek to imitate our present evil environment. We're to lay aside our pre-conversion life. And not only that, but we're not to seek to imitate the very present evil environment in which we live. Paul encourages us not to fall back into the patterns of thinking that were characteristic of our lives before we came to know Christ. Let me just say this by way of brief application here. Contrary to popular belief, And sometimes this is even espoused by local churches. But contrary to popular belief, we will never influence the world for Christ by trying to be like it. We will never influence the world for Christ by jumping in the fishbowl and swimming with it. Everything that we read in Scripture calls us to swim upstream, against the grain, in the world, but not of the world. If we want to have a positive, Christ-like influence on the world in which we live, we can't just imitate the world. You see, the church at Ephesus, 
was surrounded by a pagan lifestyle. Ephesus was a water port city. It was kind of the the thoroughfare for travel. Uh, Rampant idol worship took place there. Uh, Major temples, idol makers. I mean, you would walk through the market and it would seem as though every or every other booth had trinkets or idols. I mean, that, that was the, the lifestyle that was characteristic of Ephesus. And now you have this small but vibrant, growing church. You have young believers in Ephesus. And they are like a small island of despised people in a giant cesspool of wickedness. I mean, that's us in the world in which we live. Despised at times. Living in a cesspool of wickedness. Most of the believers there in Ephesus had themselves once been a part of that very paganism in which they had come out of. But yet they still had to frequently pass through those places where they once caroused. They oftentimes ran into friends from whom they once indulged in in all sorts of sinful acts. They faced the continual temptations to revert back to their old ways of life. And therefore, Paul admonishes them, and us as well, here in our text, to resist that unrelenting pull. Do you even notice that pull? Just think about it. Do you notice that pull back into the world? If not, there's something tragically wrong. Paul encourages us to resist that relentless pull. He says, this I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord. Let me press pause right there. Paul's not speaking on his own authority here, by the way. Paul is saying, this is what the Lord says to you, church at Ephesus. I'm agreeing and affirming him. These are his words to you, Cape Bible Chapel. The Lord is speaking to us when he says, be in the world, but not of the world. I affirm together with the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Peter said it this way in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He said, for the, that time is past, and it suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, your, your old lifestyle is now past, and, and that time of doing what the lost world did is now over. And then he goes on and he says, it was living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they, that's the lost world, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, malign you. They think it's weird when you don't join them in the very sin in which they love. Let me ask you this question. Is that true of you? Do those people who know you and me, I'm in the crosshairs here, Do those people that know us best think it's strange that we don't engage in the same things that they engage in? Are they surprised that we don't join with them in their sin? Are they surprised that we don't talk like they talk? Are they surprised that we don't frequent the places that they frequent? Are they surprised that we don't watch what they watch? Are they surprised that we don't laugh at what they laugh at? That is convicting for me. If not, it's possible that we look too much like them. If the lost world is not surprised. Now, we we don't want to mar our witness with those whom we love, our friends, our relatives, our co-workers, our neighbors, uh, by, by shunning them, but we don't want to look like them because that will never win them. 
We must be, we must be a picture of the gospel to a lost and dying world. And that means that I don't talk like they talk. Like they talk. I don't frequent the places they frequent. I don't watch what they watch. I don't laugh at what they laugh at. Could we be accused of being just like them? And if so, our influence will be significantly smaller. Paul's first admonition to us as believers here is that we are to think differently from unsaved people. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Paul's dealing with the mind here. We've talked over and over uh, again uh, about the, the need to cultivate our minds. You do what you do because you what? Fill in the blank. Because you think what you think. Therefore, we're to be renewed, transformed in our what? Say it. In our mind. That's right. It's an overarching emphasis, especially in the New Testament, on our minds. And Paul picks it right back up here, and he he gives us contrast to the mind of an unbeliever. And he says, that mind is a futile mind. Even as you scan through the verses that that kind of uh, parentheses our text here, verses 17 through 23, you'll see that there's a lot of emphasis on the way that we think. As a matter of fact, salvation, salvation begins with the way that we think. You say, explain. I will. The Greek word for repentance, metanoia, simply means this. It means to change the mind or to have a reversal of thought. That's what it means to repent. It means I was walking in my sin. Repentance means I have a change of mind or a reversal of thought and I do an about face or a 180 and I now walk in a different way. Where I was once walking in darkness, now I walk in the light. You see, salvation begins with our thought process. The mind, repentance, a change of the mind. A futility here in our text, in the original language, it has the idea of that which is transitory. Paul talks about the lost world and the futility of their minds. Futility there has the idea of that which is transitory or vain or purposeless or worthless. Or maybe if I could give you another little way to capsulize it here in your thinking, the inability to reach something's intended goal the inability to reach something's intended goal. That's what it means to be futile. Same word here is used in the Greek Septuagint. That's that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This same word here, futility, it's used 39 times. Guess what book? Let me tell you how it's translated and you'll know. It's translated vanity. Tell me the book. Ecclesiastes. 39 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, this same word is used. Vanity or futility. You see, the original purpose, going back to my capsulized thought for you, the inability to to reach something's intended goal. Well, the original purpose for the mind was to be able to comprehend God, to be able to know and understand God and and his revelation to us. Adam did so in the garden, temporarily pre-fall. But as a result of the fall, a person's mind is unable It's unable to accomplish its intended goal. You see, all the endeavors that a non-believer pursues in order to attain purpose and meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction and lasting happiness, they all end at the end of the day in disappointment. Even if there is temporary pleasure, it ends in death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to what? Say it. Destruction. Death. So even in the end, even if it does not result in immediate disappointment and immediate dissatisfaction, it will in the end. If we live in the futility of our minds, the vanity of our minds, not using the mind that God gave us for what he gave us 
that mind for, it will end in disappointment, destruction, and death. You see, for the lost person, for the unbeliever, their life is one long series of mocked expectations. It's a life of always pursuing but never achieving, blossoming but never bearing fruit, all the rivers of their pursuits running into the sea but never filling the ocean. Their eyes are never satisfied with seeing, nor their ears with hearing. They chase after riches, they chase after honor, they chase after pleasure and and amusement, all without even knowing that it's like chasing after the wind. That's what it means to have a, a futile mind, to live in the futility of our minds. It's like trying to build a house of sand on the seashore. It's like trying to shoot at the stars or chasing our shadows. Chasing after the world system, loving what the world loves, thinking the way the world thinks, and living the way the world lives is futile. And if that characterizes your life, it will leave you empty-handed and empty-hearted every single time without doubt. God said it this way through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2.13. He said, my people have committed two sins. Number one, they've forsaken me. That's futility of mind, to forsake the living God. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water. Second charge, second indictment. They've sought to dig their own cisterns or their own wells, broken wells that can hold no water. If we look for purpose, fulfillment, satisfaction, happiness, pleasure, delight anywhere else outside of a triune, holy God who created us to know him, to love him, and to be loved by him, it will leave us empty-handed and empty-hearted every time, like trying to fill up a well that's cracked. It's futile. It's futile. Let me give you some practical application for you, believer. If you want to avoid living in the futility of your mind, think often about your death. You say, well, that sounds awful morbid. If you want to escape living in the futility of your mind, then think often about your death. As a young man, Jonathan Edwards penned 70 resolutions to give clear direction to his life. And his ninth, I would encourage you, by the way, if you've never read the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards, go Google it today. Print them out, uh, put them somewhere where you can see them. They will encourage your soul. They they will challenge you deeply, uh, I trust. But Jonathan Edwards' ninth resolution, this is what he penned. He said, I am resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. And again, you might sit there and think, well, that sounds unnecessarily morbid. But let me submit to you that it's difficult to live wisely apart from keeping the brevity of your life in view. It's very hard, very difficult, potentially impossible to live wisely apart from keeping the brevity, the shortness, the vaporness of your life in view. Moses said it this way in Psalm 90, verse 12. He said, teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Wisdom is the opposite of futility. How do we grow in wisdom? Teach us to number our days. Keep your death in mind because that will bring purpose to each passing hour. 
We're all going to have to stand before God one day, and we're going to give an account for how we stewarded this life. You want a text for that? Among many, you can jot down 2 Corinthians 5.10. We're going to have to give an account for how we stewarded our lives. We're not the owner of this life. We're merely a steward. How we used it, we'll give an account for. And when you get to the end of your life, let me ask you this question. What do you want to have accomplished for the cause of Christ? What do you want to have accomplished that passes the test of eternity? If you don't think often about the brevity of your life, then days will clip by one after another after another. And we will reach the end thinking, I wish I would have. Fill in the blank. And we will have given our lives to things that are of little eternal value. Number two. We're not to live like unbelievers who walk in the darkness of their understanding. Again, pops right out from the text. It's very clear there. We're not to live like unbelievers who walk in the darkness of their understanding. Look at the very first phrase there of verse 18. Paul says, they, that's the unbelieving lost world, they are darkened in their understanding. You see, the futility of the Gentiles' moral attitudes is further expressed by a darkening of their reasoning process. A darkening of their understanding process. The unsaved person's thinking is futile. Why? Because it's darkened. It's darkened. He thinks he's enlightened. The lost man, the lost woman, thinks that he or she is enlightened and wise because they suppress the truth of the Bible and they stand on or they trust in their own wisdom. I don't need any of that. That's a mere crutch for you Christians. I can stand on my own wisdom. Interpretation, I am my own God. He thinks he's enlightened because he trusts his own wisdom. But in reality, apart from God's light, his understanding is darkened. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, a familiar text to many of us. He said, in their case, speaking about the lost world, unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They are blinded from seeing the glory of Christ. That is the very message which we preach. That is the very reason why we must look distinguishably different from the world in which we live because when we go to share the gospel of the glory of Christ and they look at our lives and they see an incongruency, they see no need for our Christ. You see, it's not simply that the eyes of unbelievers are blinded so they can't see but that their minds are darkened so they cannot think properly about spiritual matters. You ever been in a cave when the tour guide turned the lights off? Darkness is absolutely startling. There are not many places that we can go outside of a cave or in a basement or something like that where we are subject to total darkness. There's oftentimes a nightlight on or... uh, cell phone rings, there's, there's some form of light, but being in total darkness is absolutely startling. And what is darkness? Well, darkness, by definition, is simply the absence of light. Of course, here we're talking about spiritual light. To have an understanding that is darkened is to have an understanding that is uninformed by the light of God's word. You see, the mind of a lost person is very capable, it's very active, but it is incapable incapable of perceiving God's light. 
Paul said the natural, the lost, the unregenerate person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. With an understanding that's darkened, with an understanding that is uninformed by the light of God's truth, the lost will do whatever seems right in their own eyes. Right? Now, just as we're, I don't want you to, your mind to drift too far about the lost, the lost, the lost, as if we're talking about someone that exists outside this building. Remember, so were we lost in sin and darkness. Once were you, once was I, if we know Christ, fast bound in sin and death. Not only are unbelievers darkened in their understanding, but they love the dark. Paul's painting a bleak picture here. Not only are unbelievers darkened in their understanding, but they love the dark. This is what Jesus said. He said, this is the judgment, or this is the verdict. John chapter 3, light has come into the world. That's me, by the way, he says. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his work should be exposed. You see, this isn't a picture. Paul's not painting a picture in our text this morning of unbelievers crying out, Oh God, if only I could see! If only I could see! That's not the picture that Paul's painting here. You see, the very opposite is true. Unbelievers are partying in the dark and they don't want the light to expose their sin. When, when God saved you and when he saved me, we weren't sitting around crying, oh God, if only I could see. We were in the utter darkness and he reached down and he opened our blinded eyes and gave us a new heart and put his spirit in us and redeemed us. Then we could see. Then we had new understanding. Then we had a new renewed mind contrast here to the darkness or spiritual blindness of the lost. Think back to the enlightenment of the eyes of believers. As a matter of fact, if you've got your Bible there in front of you, turn back to chapter 1 real quick. Chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Paul prayed this. This is one of a couple of prayers that existed there in chapter 1. He prayed, May the Father of glory give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes, what? Say it. Enlightened. Having your eyes enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You see, that's the contrast for the spiritual darkness and spiritual blindness of the lost world here is the fact that our eyes, not because we deserved it, not because we merited merited it, have been enlightened by God himself. And so what Paul's saying here is don't walk as the lost world walks with a darkened understanding or to state it positively. We Christians are to walk in the light as he is in the light. would encourage you to memorize that. 1 John 1, 7. Walk in the light as he is in the light. We can probably have our, our whole families memorize that before we even step back foot in our homes today. Walk in the light as he is in the light. 1 John 1, 7. Likewise, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Let me ask you this question, friends. Are you walking with the light of the world and so walking in the light? You can't walk in the light if you're not walking with the light. Are you walking with the light of the world and so walking in the light? If you don't want to have a darkened understanding, then become a biblical thinker about every issue you face. If you don't want to have, so let me apply this to you believers. If you don't want to have a darkened understanding, then apply God's word, apply the Bible to every issue you face, whether how to relate to others, how to manage your time or your money, how to act on the job, how to, how to handle or view or walk through trials. Learn how to be a biblical thinker about those issues. Number three. We're not to live like unbelievers who walk in alienation from the life of God. This is the second phrase in verse 18. Paul simply says, alienated from the life of God. The word alienation here has the idea or the same meaning as as separation. And that's what sin does. It separates us from God. You see, unblemished fellowship in the garden was shattered in an instant by the sin of Adam and Eve's willful, willful disobedience. Where man was once at perfect peace with God, the whole human race in a single action became estranged from God, alienated from God, dead in our trespasses and sins, and needing to be born again. John chapter 3. So becoming a Christian isn't a matter of eliminating sinful behavior and just replacing it with principled behavior. That's not what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't just mean removing immoral, sinful behavior and replacing it with principled behavior, although that will follow. A truly converted, a truly regenerated heart will produce good fruit. Principled, biblical, God-honoring behavior. But if we think that, that Christianity, that becoming a Christian is just a matter of eliminating sinful behavior and replacing it with principled behavior, we've bought into the lie of what we call moralistic deism. It's just moralism. And that's what Jesus over and over and over again took the Pharisees to task over. You look great on the outside, guys. You got it all together. But on the inside, you're, you're like a, 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 a dead man. A whitewashed tomb full of dead man's bones, beautiful but yet rank on the inside. Infinitely more than behavior modification, becoming a Christian is a matter of receiving new life from God. We were alienated. A lost person is alienated from God. Can you remember back to our study thus far? We've, we've talked about the fact that we're no longer aliens and strangers. We're no longer aliens of the commonwealth. Our citizenship is in heaven. We've been seated in the heavenlies. We're no longer estranged in Christ. We're no longer aliens in Christ. It's because we've received new life from God. That's what it means to become a Christian. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, truth and life always go together. Truth and life always go together. Unbelievers, though, because of their darkened understanding, deny the very fact that they need a Savior. Paul said that the the gospel message is foolishness or folly to those who are perishing. Though they claim to be wise, they're foolish to reject the light of God's revelation. But for those who have come to the cross of Christ by faith and repentance, 
Paul said this. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. He said, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. That's what's true about us in Christ. No longer strangers, no longer alienated from the life of God. Let me bring some practical application here, believers. Number one, let me encourage you to preach the truth of the gospel to yourself daily. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Begin that habit, begin that routine of reminding yourself that you were once lost and dead in trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, even while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This not of yourselves, not by works, so that no man can boast. Preach the gospel to yourself, brothers and sisters. Remind yourself of it, because there is an anti-gospel rhetoric that comes in the way of TV, that comes in the way of newspaper, that comes in the way of tabloid, that comes in the way of radio, Preach the gospel to yourself. The gospel declares that though we were once cold and lifeless, spiritually cut off from the life of God, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul's told us that already in his letter. Brought near by the blood of Christ. The gospel reminds you that when you sin and blow it royally, and you will, and I will today, that when you sin and blow it royally, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Preach the gospel to yourself. When you're tempted to think you're condemned, you must remember that Jesus was condemned in your place. Friends, let me encourage you with this principle. Spiritually speaking, spend much less time listening to yourself, and much more time talking to yourself. When we listen to ourselves, we oftentimes get into trouble. Speak to yourself. Remind yourself of truth. Preach the gospel to yourself. And I would also say here, don't live as a stranger. That word alienated there, so let me pick up on the word stranger. Christians, don't live as a stranger to the means of grace, particularly to the people of God and the word of God. Don't neglect the meeting together, the assembly of believers. You've heard it said, maybe we've even said it, I don't need to go to church, I can watch it on TV, or I'm a Christian, I don't need to be around God. That's becoming a stranger to some of the very means of grace that we need for growth. Don't be a stranger to the people of God and the word of God. Have a daily quiet time. Set aside time each day where you can meditate on the word of God. Memorize it. Hide it in your heart that you might not sin against him. Number four. We're not to live like unbelievers who walk in spiritual ignorance because of their hard hearts. The very last part of verse 18 there, Paul says, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. You see, the desperate condition of unbelievers is further painted in terms of their being ignorant of truth because they have hard, stony hearts. What does it mean to know God? 
if you, if you had to turn your outline over and answer that question, how would you complete the sentence? What does it mean to know God? Hope you have a good answer for that. Simply, and a much broader, much more full explanation is probably necessary, but to know God means to have a close and intimate relationship with him. You see, knowledge has to do, at least in Scripture, knowledge has to do with an obedient and grateful response to the person of God and to the precepts of God. Let me pause there and ask, is that true of us? Do we have a grateful, humble, obedient response to the person of God and the precepts of God? That's a part of what it means to know Him. Likewise, ignorance is a failure to be grateful and obedient. To not know the Lord is actually to ignore him and to say no to his commands. And it's important to note that this ignorance, the very ignorance that Paul speaks of here in verse 18, is ignorance that the lost person is culpable culpable of or for. You see, ignorance, uh, contrary to popular thought, is never an excuse for sin. Unbelievers are always morally responsible for their suppression of the truth. They aren't victims, they're violators. They're not victims. And such were we before the grace of God removed our crusty, lifeless heart and gave us a heart of flesh. You see, that's the very idea of Paul's words, hardness of heart here. The word hard there, it's the Greek word porosis. It actually comes from a word which originally referred to any stone that was harder than marble. This is where the phrase heart of stone comes from. Mark used the very word in his gospel to describe those who were angry and enraged that Jesus would heal a man who had a withered hand on the Sabbath. Don't turn there, but let me just read it to you here. Mark chapter 3, this is what Mark pens. He says, again, he, Jesus, entered into the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, hard-hearted, unbelieving, ignorant, darkened. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, here's the question to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Porosis, harder than stone. A hard heart describes a heart that is unwilling to respond to God's truth. It's what Paul calls truth suppressors. In Romans chapter 1, he says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth, hold down the truth. In other words, they know the truth by way of creation and by way of conscience they know the truth that god exists and he demands holiness but we suppress the truth and unrighteousness this is a deliberate refusal of moral light and it's an obstinate rejection of the truth of god the person who is hard of heart sees light in creation and conscience again but refuses to submit to it ignores it according to an old greek story A young Spartan boy once stole a fox, and then he inadvertently stumbled upon the man from whom he had stolen it from. And to keep his theft from being discovered, the boy stuck the fox in his clothes and stood without moving a muscle while the frightened fox tore out his vital organs. You see, even at the cost of his own painful death, he wouldn't own up to his wrong. 
He wouldn't admit his sin. Suppressing the truth will cost you dearly. Let me ask you this question. Who does the heart hardening? The unbeliever or God? Who does the heart hardening? Answer? Yes. The answer is yes. The unbeliever hardens his own heart toward God, and then God judiciously acts to confirm that hardness. In other words, when men continually persist in following their own way, they will also eventually be confirmed in their choice by the God of heaven. We see this in Pharaoh in Exodus chapters 4 through 14. We see language, Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart in those 10 chapters there. We also see it in Israel. The Jews... God's chosen people who had God's word given given to them through Moses and the prophets and other Old Testament writers who had the far greater advantage of seeing and hearing God's own incarnate son harden their own hearts in unbelief. John writes about it. He says, though he had done for them so many signs before, they still did not believe in him. Therefore, they could not believe. You catch that? They still did not believe. Therefore, they could not believe. John chapter 12. Because they would not believe, they could not believe. Every person, without exception, is morally responsible for their sin and is morally responsible for the light that has been shown to them in creation and by way of conscience. Let me apply this to you believers. Let me do it by way of the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews said this in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. He said, take care, brothers, lest there be any among you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, that's encourage one another, preach the gospel to one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today... Here's the point. Today, friends, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. When you hear his voice, right here, don't harden your hearts in unbelief. Be submissive to the revealed word of God. We're out of time. Let me close with point number five here. We'll be brief. Lastly, we are not to live like unbelievers who walk in calloused sensuality and rampant impurity. We're not to walk like unbelievers who walk in calloused sensuality and rampant impurity. Look at verse 19. Paul says, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You see, verse 19 here, verse 19 describes the final result of this downward spiral into sin. Paul says they've become callous and they've given themselves up to all kinds of impurity. The word callous there, it's, a, it's an interesting word. It really means, it's tra- translated into our language, it means to cease to feel pain. Literally, beyond feeling. Beyond feeling. So spiritually, it means, to be callous spiritually means to lose the capacity to feel guilt, to lose the capacity to feel shame, to lose the capacity to feel embarrassment over our sin. We do what we want, when we want, we don't care who sees it, who knows about it. I'm just calloused. 
I'm beyond feeling when it comes to sin. You see, the first time that a person sins, he thinks or she thinks, I'll just do it once. We think immediate pleasure, immediately del- immediate delight, immediate gratification. I'll just do it once. But after we do it, oftentimes, especially if we know Christ savingly, our conscience begins to, to prick at us. We feel guilty. But the next time that we sin, the next time that we give in, it becomes a little bit easier. And we can rationalize it by saying it's not really that bad or others do worse. You see, every time it becomes easier and easier to sin as our conscience develops a spiritual callous. Is your conscience calloused? We can be in Christ, in vital union with him, know him savingly, be genuinely converted, and have calloused spots on our hearts. New heart, but rough, patchy pieces. Where we cease to feel some of the prick of sin, each time it becomes easier and easier Psalm 36, David said this. He said, transgression or sin speaks or whispers to the wicked in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out or detected. And therefore, it is not hated. That's that's futile thinking. My sin won't find me out. It can't be detected. Therefore, I won't hate it. That's futile thinking. That's that's thinking with darkened understanding. You see, God in his graciousness has given every person a conscience, and that conscience is a built-in warning system that's intended to help us discern what is right from what is wrong. And it can either be strengthened by continually hiding God's word in our heart and pursuing obedience, or it can be desensitized by continually or over and over and over again rejecting God's word and instead pursuing the fleeting pleasures of sin. When this conscience becomes desensitized, men will, will become a loose cannon of sinful destruction. You see, the text before us is a clear picture of what happens when a person can no longer discern that which is right from that which is wrong. He's become so desensitized to his sin that he doesn't even care what the consequences are. This callousness, this inability to feel the sting of sin reminds me of how Eskimos trap and kill wolves. And listen to this. To trap and kill a wolf, an Eskimo will coat a knife blade with animal blood and allow it to freeze. And then he dips it again and again, adding layer after layer of frozen blood until the blade's edge is completely concealed before he affixes the knife to the ground, blade up. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it. Tasting the fresh, frozen blood, he begins to look faster and faster, harder and harder, lapping on the blade until its keen edge is bare. Feverishly, he licks the blade over and over and over again in the Arctic night. His craving for blood becomes so insatiable, so great, that he fails to notice the moment that that razor-sharp sting of the naked blade is now on his own tongue. And instead of being satisfied by another's blood, he's being satisfied by his own. Friends, don't ever become comfortable with sin. Like weeds in a garden, if you don't pull it out by the root, it will take over. Never, capital N-E-V-E-R, be content with sin. A little sin always leads to a lot of sin, and sin will eat your lunch and charge you for it. 
Though it looks innocent, it's never tame. It promises delight, but it only delivers death. Sin will take you farther than you're willing to go. It'll keep you longer than you're willing to stay. And it'll cost you more than you're willing to pay. It'll burn you, it'll bite you, and then it will butcher you. One man wrote this, We cannot afford to play with fire nor tempt the serpent's bite. We cannot afford to think that sin brings any true delight. But a darkened understanding thinks that sin brings delight. Friends, keep your conscience tender towards God. Don't give yourself to sin. It never satisfies and it always enslaves. We see the words here. They've given themselves up to. In Romans chapter 1, we see the words God gave them over to. But here in verse 19, unbelievers have given themselves up to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. This is describing the pursuit of sin from the perspective of the unbeliever. They've given themselves over to. Sensuality here refers to a person who casts off all restraint and has no regard even for public decency. It's to be openly and shamelessly in violation of God's moral standards. We are not to live that way. We're not to walk that way. That characterized our old life. But there's been repentance, we pray. A change of mind, a change of thought pattern, and now we're now walking in the light. And what once characterized my life is no longer to characterize my life. Let me leave you with this thought. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite old dead guys, once said this. Just ask yourself if this is true about you. The heart that has really tasted the grace of Christ will instinctively and increasingly hate sin. The heart that has truly tasted of grace will instinctively and increasingly hate sin. That is to mark our new walk and our new life.